Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Welcome, Governor. Welcome, Governors. Welcome, Governors. Zero. We Sorry, have fellas. Today. So we have two guests from overseas mm-hmm. today. This is the first time we've done an international podcast. Very posh. Wow. Very and, yes. Which and, means that we're we're here rather early in the morning. Whereas Ronan would say early in oh, the morning. Sh- shut up. Yeah. We've got to introduce our guests. It's it's eight a.m. By the way, that's not early. Okay. So today we have with us um, Paul Humphrey and Elliot Banks of BMLL. Uh, Paul is the chief executive officer, and Elliot is the chief product officer. Welcome, fellas. Sorry for the, the long-winded <laughs> intro. <laughs> oh, thank you very much for having us. Um, well, and, and thank you for the uh, English accent there to lead us in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was quite you. something. We so, don't need any encouragement. You know, we're uh, a few yeah, weeks away right. from the World Cup. By the time this comes out, I think oh. England play uh, the U.S. the oh. day after Thanksgiving. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Ronan's a big uh, Manchester fan. No, so I'm not a clown. Liverpool. Oh, oh, Liverpool. Liverpool. Sorry. Oh, excuse Whoa, me. No, I got it wrong. Okay, Liverpool. <laughs> Manchester. <laughs> These, those are okay. fighting world. Okay. Oh, All right. All right. Could you edit Sorry. that out, Jake? <laughs> Clown. Okay. Let, uh, let's kick Jake. it. Let's kick it off to our listeners, because God bless us. We have a <laughs> we have we have a plethora. Thank you. Um, <laughs> what is BMLL? Just tell us a little bit about you know the company and what it is you guys do, and then we'll we'll kick this off. Well, first of all, BMLL. Uh, we are historic data specialists. We specialize in taking end of day full-depth market-by-order data from over 65 venues around the world, and then we perform a series of magic on it to make it usable. Elliot, want to jump in and talk about the magic? Yeah, absolutely. So we, as Paul said, we take data from, from multiple venues, formats, over time, and we make it consistent and usable. More than anything else, we mean that you can look at what's traded on IEX, what's traded on NYSE, what's traded on Tokyo, what's traded on Johannesburg, and it will look the same over time and across venue at the most granular level. So you can go back and see what has happened in a really easy, usable way. And and you can and so you take all of that uh, aggregated data and construct it into standardized products, bespoke products for particular kinds of clients. How do you how do you mine the data and how do you how do you sell it? So our, our core product is our is our BMLL data lab. That's essentially a data science environment. Quants analysts can come in in a in a fairly low code environment, query all of that, run whatever analysis they want, and then you know take that results and put it in whatever system they want. On top of that, we use the data products to build analytics off the back of it, where which are basically data products that users can take. And we've recently launched BML Advantage, which is a visual product which allows with no code, users to come in, look across years of our data at granular depth to, to compare different venues, understand you know trends, and, and ultimately use that to, to help their, their analysis. So Elias, right, we have the three products. If we're going to own that space of historic data, originally the quant product was our first. And when we launched the visual tool, we went to the quants at one of our banking clients and we said to these guys, what do you think of our new visual tool? They went, well, we think it's great. I said, is there any particular reason? He goes, yeah, you can roll that out to our sales desk. It'll stop them asking us stupid questions. <laughs> 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 it's, it, we really do have 
a product that spans the whole area of the firm, right from the. So there you go, listeners. You can get your sales, but just to stop asking (laughs) stupid questions. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to smarten up your sales desk, Vantage. (laughs) That's the way forward. Our sales desk are very smart because they're about eighty percent of our listenerships. (laughs) (laughs) We think they're very smart. Um, How did you personally like get into this business? What were you doing beforehand? What was it that uh, convinced you that this was an opportunity to step into? Well, I'm not the founder. Uh, I came in in 2019. So previously, uh, I was at a stock exchange too. I was the CEO of Euronext over in London. And before that, I came from uh, a banking and broking background. I ran electronic markets for TPI Cap, and I was head of e-commerce for ABN AMRO. Um, so I stepped in here as the, as the scale-up guy. So I'm certainly not the founder. I saw a capability that was just ripe to be scaled up. And... Um, I think I was right. Um, We've just gone through and completed our successful Series B funding. NASDAQ Ventures are uh, a lead investor alongside FactSet, and uh, we just raised $26 million, so we're very proud that's hit the news. But Elliot, you can talk more about the building of the underlying tech because you were there pretty much from day one. Yeah, I was there pretty early. I um, I, So my background's quite... Like Paul was quite mixed, but in a very different way. I actually started off in private equity, buying toll roads, airports, and all sorts of wonderful large infrastructure products. Jesus, um, this is a pivot, a career change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a little bit. I then I then went back to back to school to do my PhD in theoretical physics, and after that, got into data science analytics. Joined a little startup that was BMLL pre any customers. You know, we, they sort of there was a bit of an alpha product, but but not much of one. Um, and really, that was early 2017, helped to shape and build the product for a number of years. And then about the time Paul joined, having sort of sat more as a data scientist and a technologist, we built a great piece of kit, but we hadn't really productized it. So I stepped across to be chief product officer to help productize a lot of the under- underlying technology that we built. From our vantage point, obviously, we're an exchange and we're big believers in data analytics. We actually have a data analytics team and we push a lot of analytics towards our clients to try and show them, you know, best execution on IEX. But when when you look at your client base, is that is that made up of exchanges, buy side, sell side, all of the above? More more on the data analytics team side, or now advantage the front end salespeople as well, or just everybody? So we think about our customers in uh, three main buckets. You're absolutely right. The exchanges are fantastic customers of ours uh, doing exactly what you describe. It's incredibly competitive out there and each venue wants to opine on why they think their venue is better than the one next door and why you should be putting certain types of orders through them. So, yep. And I've got to tell you, when I was at Euronext, answering that question of well, who is my best market maker it certainly wasn't one we sent the largest bill to that's for sure and we were balancing you know volume market share and yield and that's the job of data scientists um at each of the exchange then there's the banks and brokers every area of the banks and brokers right from the quantitative execution research through to the algo building world if you like through to the sales and execution area they're of course fiercely competing with each other for flow 
and they use the same analytics that we show the exchanges. They use it uh, to show their customers why they should be executing through them. And then the buy side, the tier one, tier two, tier three hedge funds love our product. They understand the non-trivial amount of engineering that's gone into it. They really do appreciate that. And for the tier two and tier threes, because we present this data in a cloud-hosted environment, it comes out of a box for them. They can literally hit the ground running with us. So that's how we tend to think about the world. And and when you talk about um, uh, talk a little bit about level three data, what what does that mean? And when you talk about historical data in this context, I assume that you're not you're not talking about data that's months or, or years old. But you're not talking about um, a lot of people do analytics on uh, real time um, data and subscribe to all of those feeds. So you're so so anyway, help us understand a little bit more about. Um, uh, the, those two concepts. You wouldn't know that John was in bed only 45 minutes ago. <laughs> this is good. Well done, man. Well done. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> no, the John, power of coffee. The power of coffee. You, you, uh, please go ahead. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe I can take I can take that one. Um, so so level three data is every single insertion, cancellation, correction that that comes from the exchange. So every single order that comes through um, throughout the day. And, you know, it's worth pointing out, we don't actually have level three across every venue. Some venues like yourself actually only provide a level a level two feed. In that case, we'll, we'll take that. But um, otherwise, we'll take, you know, the most granular view. And what that gives is a full picture or the most complete publicly available picture of what's happening on the market. You can see you know, where you were in the queue, why those orders came through, what's happened at any point in time. And and really, you know, when, when we look at, think about historical data, we will take an end of day feed, a dump straight off the wire of what's happened over, over the day. We will then put it in our system, make it consistent and store it with all of the previous data. So in the US now, we have seven years of, of, that, of that data across all of the venues. In Europe, it's more about five. And then across our futures venues, ICME and Eurex, we have about, about three and a half. So you've then got an ability to go back, look over time, replay what's happened, but also turn that into insights about what participant behavior is. You know, are resting times falling? And might that indicate that people have less confidence in, in, you know, in their conviction in how they're trading? So all of that gets wrapped up then into products that are either, you know, a consistent view of that underlying data or analytics that sit on top that make it easy to understand the behavior of the market. So when you when you take in all that data, not to get too wonky, I'm just curious, you try to marry it up venue versus venue, but from a timestamp standpoint, you're just taking each venue's view of their timestamp. Is that is that difficult to stitch it all together so that you can like um have everything in chronological fashion? So that makes sense. That. Yeah, no, that that, yeah. that does. It's it's absolutely it's a it's a great question. Um Timestamps are something we they're high five now, Elliot. Yeah, don't don't, don't humor him. It's <laughs> like he takes <laughs> any. Thank yeah. you, Elliot. <laughs> You're gonna get some special IEX swag. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, you can too. You've still got like 15 minutes. <laughs> That's Don't right, you. but you got you got ground to make up. Um, anyway, go ahead. So yeah, we 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 always put the matching engine timestamps on. You know, it's our view that you know, a lot of our a lot of our customer base for them, timestamps aren't something they're looking at at that level of granularity. Um, we have other customers where it's it's more of something they they want to look at and 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 understand in detail. For those customers, 
you know, they have their own view of, of time stamping. They'll have their own latency curves. They'll have their own view that they'll build on top of it. So it's our view is really, you know, we are the record of what has happened at the venues. And then you can come in and, you know, in our environment, for example, you can upload your own data. So they'll come in, they'll, they'll commingle. But for a lot of customers and a lot of, a lot of them, the street really, they've never really had an ability to look at this at this level of, of granularity, you know. You, you talk to an exchange and say, well, well, what percentage of your orders get cancelled? They won't really easily be able to, to pull it out. And you go and talk to someone on the buy side or the sell side, similar thing. And actually just having that ability to look at that depth is something that, that's been really, really valuable to them. And, and I assume, um, this may be an obvious question. When you talk about stitching together all of the data from um, all of these different exchanges, um, it, is that within a particular geography? Um, I, I would assume the demand is, I mean, is it cross-border? To what extent is it cross-border? Do people use that information in that way? So it's absolutely both. You know, we we obviously, you know, one of the things you can see when you look in, in detail at the European market, for example, is what happens when when the U.S. wakes up and you actually see a lot more activity coming in, especially in stocks which are which are dual traded. So that that cross view is actually really important in those areas. Being able to do it, we did something a couple of years ago looking at um, how the e mini was related to some of the you know spike the ETF and and looking not just cross venue and cross region but cross asset class uh, and actually what is what is driving what how is the behaviour there changing what is the impact of one venue having on the other and one asset class having on the other. Interesting. I actually used to work for uh, Radiance, which was bought by BT, and BT traded out of London and then ADR in the US. And at that time, this was like 2005, there was latency arbitrage between you know the, the prices uh, coming together. But um, we, we also them. used to like throw pagers off the b- back of a truck. That's true. I've done a lot of crazy shit. Yeah, done a lot of yeah, both personally and professionally. But <laughs> we've all been there. In any case, I mean, you know, from what I understand, you guys believe that the the race for speed is over, and it's more now a race for data analytics, which. Uh, I agree with in terms of the increase in the requirements for data analytics. It's it's almost like a, a fucking must have at this point. But um, what what do you mean by the race of speed is over? Do you, do you think that the latency there has been eked out to such a degree? Because I I can at least speak for the U.S. People are still looking for every which way to cut like nanoseconds off of everything. Yeah, well, you guys put the speed hub in, right? So you killed it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we'd so, love we'd love to think that we had. Uh, but I think, you know, um, no, right, you, we, get we, a, you get a, a hat. <laughs> that was a fucking tee up, Paul. I, I, t- I hit him this morning. I'm like, this is how you answer that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we 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 like saying that. I mean, look, no, I'll, t- I'll tell you why we think the race for analytics is on. I think it's been, and it'll be known to you guys, of course, but to a lot of the market, when it came to the high frequency firms. A lot of people they thought they were just quicker than everybody else because they've got bigger boxes and wider pipes. Actually, a lot of it was to do with they had armies of quants mining exactly the type of data that I'm talking about here to predict what was going to happen next. That's what made them look fast. So and I don't think that was well known. 
across the industry you know we often say you know, what we're providing our clients is access to what some of the most sophisticated firms in the world only had their hands on not that many years ago so that's why we think there'll be a race on for analytics as the market really do start to understand the power of this analytics they're gonna you know pitch up at their Bloombergs of this world and others and go, hey, can I have five years of neatly curated level three data across the whole of the US equity market, please? And they're going to go, no, we haven't got it. Um, <laughs> and that's why I think there'll be a race for this. Uh, so the speed race, of course, look, there's always going to be an arms race for speed, but there's going to be a much more violent catapult on the data and analytics side where people are racing to get this type of insight and where do they get it from? No, it makes sense because, I mean, I, I think the days of the sole determinant of success being just latency and speed are gone. I think it still exists in that you need that and a combination of like intelligence. And you're right, like the intelligence was that many of these firms had this at their fingertips for years, and this is what put them ahead of others. So, well, this is democratizing it. I mean, data. I, I, well, it, yes, but but in in terms of the accessibility to cost is obviously a significant factor, and one of the hot topics of debate in the U.S. over the cost of proprietary market data is an issue that you don't get into, don't need to get into. But how do you, in terms of what you term historical data, are you able to comfortably acquire that at a reasonable cost from all of the venues that you need to acquire it from to, to provide the products that you want to provide? Yes, we are. Um, it's, uh, you know, we're buying an end of day product and we're buying it at full depth. In all honesty, there's only a handful of companies in the world that are capable of doing anything with it. So it's not that this is a, you know, a mass product in the same way, you know, and I was at a, I was at an exchange and I ran its market data business, so I know it very well. And it's, you know, it's the real-time business, um, of course. The end-of-day level three product, it was literally only a handful of firms in the world that bought it from us because there's only a handful of firms in the world that could do anything with it. So, no, we're able to acquire it, but we're very specific with what we buy. That's the that's what we uh, look to acquire. And I, and I think another another point on that is, you know, the histor historically for firms who would take this data in, you then actually got to store it and do stuff with it. Yeah. And, and that is, you know... You know, if we look at our AWS bill, a big portion of that is actually storing that, making that available. And one of the things we completely believe is, is fundamentally, everyone does not need a copy of exactly the same set of things that have, that have happened, have gone through. There's just, there's just no point in everyone paying to store essentially the same thing. And that, and that's really, you know, one of the other things that we've, we've seen with a lot of our, our customers and, and, and a lot of what that's we've done. That's a really good point. Is, is storing is actually being that storage as well as that access point makes it easier. And coming back to the you know the question on on is it on the speed race for speed versus race for analytics, you know, fundamentally it's a it's always and it, and it's not never going to change. It's always going to be a race for technology. Now the reality is, 10, 15 years ago there were a lot of technological leaps you could make forward by you know buying a bit being a bit quicker. Now, with modern data science tools, with techniques, with cloud, there's a lot more space for people to move into on analytics. And that's why it's going to be the big forefront, because the people who did it before, you know, they had the speed, they had the analytics. Speed, everyone's on FPGA these days. Everyone's on those tools. Where you're going to differentiate yourself is having that smarts 
to put into your algo to run your analysis. Elliot makes a really good point. You know, our customers differentiate themselves by what they do with their data, not by owning it. What analytics they draw from it, what insights they draw from it, that's how they differentiate themselves. So Elliot's right. You know, we've got petabytes of data in our lake. People don't need to own that over and over and over again. It's what they do with it that separates them from everyone else. Um, it makes sense. Listen, these are... Um the people who want the data or who can really digest the data, like our quant research and data analytics people at IEX in particular, they're pretty hard to find and hire. And then when you do, maybe hard to keep here. I'm wondering, uh, do you get uh, queries or requests from the academic community to provide your data? Because that's something we see a lot in the US where they clearly can't afford these massive data stores. But can you please help fucking educate more young kids to come up so we can hire them? Yes, it's absolutely. Without the profanity, please. Yeah, absolutely. We recently supplied our tool to NYU um, for, for exactly that purpose. Um, you know, there was researchers looking to you know, gain access to our environment. We've done that with L'Ecole Polytechnique in France, University of St. Gallen in Switzerland, University of Melbourne. So yes, no, we like the academics because they write nice papers and they put our name all over it. So no, it's, it's, it's great for us. Um, we're also selling now platform now to regulators. The FCA is a client of ours. Uh, so, and we expect that to increase as well. So yep, no, we're all in favor of that. I, w- I wish, in fact, more large bulge bracket firms sponsored our platform into universities precisely for that uh, purpose of giving us a great crop of talent as an industry because there's no doubt there's a shortage and there's an ever-growing army of quants. You think about when we all first started in this industry. I mean, you take the equity market or the FX markets. Now you've got to be... You know, you've got to be a data scientist, you've got to be a mathematician, you've got to be an engineer to trade FX. I mean, my God, you know, look at where the industry's come from. So, no, we all need that talent. And uh, I think the bulge bracket should help with sponsoring tools like ours into universities to train that talent up. And speaking of regulators, there's a group of folks at the SEC that just focused on data analytics. So, you know, if any of them are listening, and I think a few of them do, yeah. anyway, if we provide a lead to you, uh, you know, just remember. Do, oh, do we well, get, uh, we get uh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll send the burgers around, guys. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> <we'll>, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. There you yeah. go. So, Speaking of regulators and re- regulation, there's obviously a uh, uh, changing r- landscape, um, uh, both in the, in the regulatory landscape in, in U.S. and Europe. How do you think that those trends are affecting people's needs for data analytics, and how are you taking account of those trends? I mean, so we haven't got a, a view on the trends, but what I can tell you is people do use our environment to model out what would be the effect of different trends i mean and that's a really good use case for our tool so you know if um, i mean elliot perhaps you can step in on that because you did quite a useful podcast on uh, so a webcast on this recently didn't you yeah so there's, there's a few things there's obviously you know one of the one of the super powerful things we we have a view of is being able to see what's going on in the microstructure of europe in the us and how and how they diverge and i think there's a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of topics at the moment in the US around tick sizes, around round lots, around, around all those things. And, you know, there's been a lot of great analysis on, on what that, what that might, what that might look like, what that might change. And that's really one of the things that, that we've seen, 
a lot of analysis of. And actually, one of the things which is always super interesting when you look at the US is the, compared to Europe especially, is the, the round lock rules and, and the implications of that. Because, you know, if you just take what's on the top of the order book at, in, in the US, 100 shares can be completely different if it's there's a lot of tips or there's not a lot of tips and, and, and depending on the price. And, and that's certainly something that, you know, we, we've seen a lot of people trying to understand, you know, what's going to, what it's going to look like in the future. Because if you change tick size rules, if you change odd lot rules, that's going to completely shift how, um, what pricing looks like at that MBBO. And, and that's something that we've, we've seen a lot of people trying to look at. In contrast, of course, Europe has a, has no, and you no know, EBBO, there's no, there's dynamic tick size. It's a very different, um, very different regime. And there's, there's nuances and differences there that you see and, and trying to understand a lot of our, there, a lot of the, the things we've seen customers trying to do is understand, okay, what happens when the share price moves from one tick size band to another? Because in Europe, you know, if you're at 20 euros and you go to, you, you cross that 20 euros barrier, suddenly your tick size doubles. So actually your, your price might look like, or the volume that you've got at a particular price level might look like it's completely different. The reality is there's just as much liquidity there as before. People have just shifted where they're placing those things and just looking at the top of the book and just looking at, you know, that sort of level one view of the market doesn't give you enough in that picture. And we've, we've had customers and, and, and people we've been talking to say, Hey, we, we're trying to understand what's happened historically. With this, you know, we can't see there's been a liquidity event, but it looks like, you know, there's loads more volume on the book. It's like, well, there's not. There's just half as many tick sizes. So people have actually had to put their, their orders in somewhere. And those are the types of questions that are being asked in, in Europe and the US at the moment. And certainly I think people will continue to ask. And, and really that's where we've seen a lot of people using our data to understand. I've got a great product idea for these guys. That, oh, okay. That well, then, then we definitely, well, then we definitely get a referral fee for that. Yes, absolutely. Can you use, Nothing comes you, free on this podcast. Can guys. you use your tools to predict what in the name of Christ the SEC are going to propose? Oh, there you go. Oh. <laughs> that's a joke. There you go. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. Although you could make a lot of money. Yeah. John used to work okay. at the SEC. Yeah. It's very, yeah, so very defensive. Get, yeah. Mm. Well, Not one of the all. exciting things we can tell you is as a result of this round of financing, one of the plans is for us to open an office in, in New York. Um, ah, so go. uh, we're going to be expanding and putting a presence into the US, which we're super excited about. So we can actually bring the burgers around in person. Yeah, there nice. you go. <laughs> <laughs> you save us money on shipping the hats. This, this, this is it's the best fundraise ever. <laughs> oh, shit. No, but it occurred to me when you were talking about it, it takes, obviously, the tick regime um, has to heavily influence the the volume of data, uh, how you analyze data, um, all of that. And, and there's huge differences between the U.S. and, and, and Europe at this point. As you know, um, uh, U.S. is much more kind of one size sort of regime looking to maybe potentially become somewhat more granular to, to the view of a U.S. practitioner. But I'll just speak for myself. The European regime, look. It looks a little batshit crazy, if you'll pardon the expression, just in terms of the number of different levels uh, and the, the degree of granularity. It seems very complicated, hard to get your arms around. Is there any discussion about like simplifying things over there or are people happy with it? So I think obviously Europe and the US when it comes to tick sizes are as extreme as you can basically get. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got one where you've got quite a detailed dynamic 
dynamic view. One where it's just doesn't matter if you're your Berkshire Halfway or your some ten dollar stock. You know, it's it's still a cent. And there's there's clearly differences there that that have a have a big impact. I think in Europe, what they've sort of tried to do um, is that there is a lot of analysis around optimal tick sizes. You know, it's it's you don't want it just to be one tick because as the spread because then you always have to cross the spread um you know you're always paying that that spread equally you don't want it to be super wide because then you know what happens is you you just get lots and lots of single price levels um i think we we looked at this recently looking on amazon pre-stock split and you know the top 10 levels basically throughout the day are the first 10 orders you know that's just the way you get in front of the queue is you just go on you know, some very, very small increment slightly closer. So I think there's certainly, you know, pros and cons of, of both. Um, not, don't really want to, you know, it's not our place to sort of answer the question of, of which one is better, but. No, no, absolutely. It's, it's our place. It's not, uh, it's this, our this, place. this is where we yeah. specialize. Yeah. yeah. We <laughs> specialize in, um, should we talk about, <laughs> we talk about AI? <laughs> I think that's an interesting topic. Yeah, I'll, I'll use a, an English word. AI is a load of bollocks. No. <laughs> there you go. There you go. True a or load false? Of, a load of bollocks. Yeah. True or false? Do, do, do you guys know what BMLL stands for? No. No. Ah, see, no, so, well, we, we, bollocks, we, blah, blah. No. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, uh, as, found, uh, as named by our early academic founders, BMLL stands for Bayesian Machine Learning on the Limit Order Book. There we go. Wow. So Jeez, that really rolls off rolls the tongue. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, they had some great attributes, our early founders. Uh, just marketing wasn't one of them. Um, <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. And, when, uh, and, when, and when they brought me on in 2019, it wasn't for my knowledge of Bayesian theorem either. That's why we got Elliot around for that. Although, although I did get a, a book for Paul um, the other day for him to um, learn a little bit more about this, which was um, Bayesian probability for babies. Um, is there really something for that? Yeah. yeah. That is. <laughs> is, that, is that like uh, in like over here they have uh, books, they call it Idiot's Guide to X. Is it, is that what they do in England? The, it's for babies? Like the, for dummies. Yeah, one, but for yeah, babies, yeah for yes. dummies. Okay. But this is literally for babies. I, I'd read it to my son. Um, oh, really? The day before, before I, uh, I brought it down and let Paul have it. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I, try, I tried to dodge reading to my kids, but now I see what that... Now you've got the, more yeah, material. But only I could rewind the clock, John. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's, too, it's too late now. So I don't know if you've um, listened to any of our recordings before. If uh, I suspect if you had, you never would have agreed to come on. Uh, but uh, for all of the, uh, our recordings, we ask our guests uh, a simple question, which is, what is your favorite Wall Street movie, and why would you pick it? Oh, oh to me, it, it only can be Trading Places. I mean, <laughs> uh, it, it has to sell more than a sell. I mean, how can you <laughs> not love that film? For me, that, yeah, one winner. That's it. Elliot? I'm a, I'm a Wolf of Wall Street, man. Uh, mm. Oh, nice. Yeah. Edgy. Oh. Edgy. <laughs> this is back when he was slinging around airports and shit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and dropping lewds and yeah. whatever. Back in my former life, I used to run a broking dealing room in the 90s, 470 brokers in London. Um, I was responsible for. So I've had my taste of Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a wild time to say the least. <laughs> it's it's funny. It's like when my friends asked me, like, where, where you work, is it kind of like Wolf of Wall Street? And 
I say no in a sad way, in a way. It's like, <laughs> we're just not that cool. Yeah. Not that everything they did was cool. Don't get yeah. me wrong. Yeah. Trading Places is an epic movie. That that's a that's a pretty popular pick, but it's pretty mm. classic movie. Yeah. What do we? Oh, uh, do sorry. we have something for our guests? We yeah. always say you're no about one, to send them off without. Yeah, no one leaves here with nothing. Yeah, I already told we, them they're going to get some got, like, tats. Shipping charges now. I yeah, guess. That's we, true. yeah, you've Jesus. already like offered uh, what well, a vest, a hat. Uh, I didn't offer the vest. Shush. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I was looking forward to the vest. I thought that was... <laughs> if you guys were in the same room oh, now, we'd make you fight for it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we're going to send you your own, very own, or we'll wait till you come to New York because it's cheaper, pair of boxes and lines socks. Oh, wow. They're very attractive. They are yes. very good. They're a collector's item. Mm-hmm. From time to time, uh, people will send us photos of their feet in them, not their photos of their feet. Uh, whatever you're into, that's fine. I don't want to see your feet, but photos yeah. of your feet... Tweets or whatever the hell. We'll wear them with pride. We Thank you very much. It. And whenever you come to here to New York, we would love to host you here. So be sure to stop by. You can come into our podcast room and do it live. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it for now. This is for our episode. We keep our episodes nice and short for the young millennials as they commute, even though they don't commute anymore because <laughs> they're all at home saying they're more productive. Okay, I'm going to rent. All Have right. a great day, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye now. Thanks for us. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Daisy Clace, with support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. 